Hello and welcome to a new year of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is... Mr. Tilteraisa. Happy New Year to you and Happy New Year to all our listeners. Especially those of you joining us for the first time. Because you may be joining us for the first time because we've got a nice new shiny feed on iTunes and we've also got a nice new Twitter handle. What is our new Twitter handle? Jaffa's for Proust. I suspect that most people listen to us have previously been listened to us on the sitcom club and Jaffa's as well, possibly. But just in case anybody is listening to us for the first ever time, doesn't know what the sitcom club is and so on and so on, can you explain this whole Jaffa Cakes for Proust business? It's that famous book, A La Recherche de Tom Perdue by Marcel Proust. I think that's the book. I'm not actually super literate. And he talks about memory and he talks about eating a small cake biscuit thing called a petit madeleine and taking a sip of tea the taste of the cake biscuit thing and the tea combined causes his sense memory to fire off and our whole thing is causing your memory to fire off maybe in wrong directions what would happen if you gave him a jaffa cake <laughs> this reminds me of something but also not and this is partially because we visit the past in some cases, we're seeing these things for the very first time. So they're reminding us of things, but not necessarily things that we really remember. So if you've downloaded this podcast thinking it was about Java Cakes and then by extension, some sort of retro nostalgia podcast, like, you know, remember refreshers and all that kind of stuff, then I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. You've wasted Well, we're not completely perpendicular to that. We will mention brand names, but we won't just say Spangles in lieu of a punchline. The same also applies if you're a huge fan of Proust. He's not actually going to get too many mentions. You'll pick it up as we go along. And, and of course, there's plenty of previous episodes of Jaffa Cakes for Proust in the archives of both sitcomclub.com, which is our old haunt on the internet, which we've been doing for almost three years now. And, of course, our new home, either you found us on iTunes or you found us at podnose.com. So, welcome. So, what in the wide, wide world of all things Jaffa, Cakes and Proust are we talking about today? Well, to draw attention to ourselves, we thought we'd do another Doctor Who story. It's a very cynical move of me. I thought, New Year, what do people like? They're like Doctor Who. We watched a Doctor Who story a few months ago, and it was I think it was the first time you'd sat and properly watched a Doctor Who story since almost ever. I, I did you see You caught the a five bit of Five doctors. doctors. Did you actually sit and watch and pay attention? Well, I was only... Now, hang on a second, let me think. I was only six. So I, I think I did actually see the entire thing, but I wasn't necessarily giving it my entire attention, and I didn't know who anybody was in it anyway because I'd never seen Doctor Who before, so a lot That's of fine. sort of lost on So me. you had your non-Fanish perspective. I had my ex-Fanish perspective. I know a lot about Doctor Who, and I did watch a lot of it, and I did pay attention to it for quite some time. And then they brought it back and I didn't like it. That's okay, I've got the old Doctor Who and I went back and I watched the old Doctor Who and I found, actually, I didn't like a lot of that as much as I thought I did. So my interest shrank. When you meet people who are interested in old television but not interested in Doctor Who, Doctor Who can be a sore point. The first time that I was aware that there was such a thing as a Doctor Who massive out there I don't know if you remember this. It was a BBC show. This must have been... Yeah, let me think. This would have been 60 years of the television service. It was 1996. I think it was hosted by Michael Parkinson. And it was this sort of backslap and celebration of BBC over the years and what have you. And they had a number of viewer polls as part of this programme. And... For example, I remember Men Behaving Badly won the best sitcom, as in best sitcom BBC had ever produced. <laughs> and there were a few instances like that where you sort of knew that the programmes which had been on recently, that they had quite an advantage over programmes from the past, programmes perhaps that hadn't been repeated a great deal. When it came to the best BBC drama of all, guess what won? And there was Peter Davidson and Sylvester McCoy picking up the award. And that suggested, yeah, there is a body of support for this show en masse that's going to say, right, we're going to vote for this. We're going to get out there. 
and we're going to make damn sure that this wins to send a message to the BBC. And of course, that isn't borne out by viewing figures over the years compared to other dramas, or even having the best slots in the schedule or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that Doctor Who fans are quite, what's the word I'm looking for, evangelical? Is that Well, let's pull back. We're not being Who hostile here. The reason you should keep listening and not go looking for another podcast about Doctor Who that deals with every single story, not just does like two stories every like six to nine months. What I'm saying is we have a slightly different perspective, I think. Slightly different. I mean, there are a lot of Doctor Who historians who do not operate off limited knowledge. They know all the things they need to know about television in general, acting in general, and the information subtitles and the commentary tracks you get on the DVDs are full of wonderful knowledge. But I just think maybe we have something to say. No, we don't. No, we're just doing this because we're hoping people will download it and then they'll come back next time for when we look at a lot of trashy movies. Well, what we do bring to the Doctor Who table is your in-depth knowledge coupled with my complete lack of knowledge. Now, you'd think that that would be a bit of an imbalance. You'd think one of us is clearly the weak link in this arrangement. However, I'm here to bring a fresh pair of eyes to the discussion. So I've never seen this Doctor Who story. I've seen a grand total of two Doctor Who stories previously, one of which had the same Doctor in it. And therefore, I can sort of appraise it on its own values. I'm not, I'm not able to compare it to anything. I can't compare it to either the same Doctor's other work or later Doctor's or whatever the hell, because I've never seen any of it. So I'm just, I suppose you would say, I'm your average viewer. I've picked up the Radio Times in 1966. I've noticed that there's a series called Doctor Who on. I thought, I'll give that a go. And apart from the fact that I was obliged to stay with the story for four weeks when perhaps I wouldn't necessarily have if I'd just been a floating viewer, Tilt, ask me, what did I think of, well, what are we talking about? What episode are we talking about? The Gunfighters, or as I keep calling it, Doctor Who and the Gunfighters. I picked up some bad habits. Last year I watched most of original Doctor Who, well, a good 60% of classic Doctor Who with my wife, who had absolutely no background with the program and did not know a lot of what was going to happen. Like the end of the first Dalek serial, she didn't know what was on the end of that plunger and thought that the cliffhanger was some man was waving a plunger-shaped weapon. (laughs) But I have picked up some bad habits, which is constantly referring to the lead character as Doctor Who, and then whenever we watch something else that has somebody from it, and I can't just say, oh, he was in The Web of Fear. So I have to say, oh, he was in Doctor Who and The Web of Fear. And I've got into that habit now, so get used to a lot of Doctor Whoing. Doctor Who and the Gunfighters has had a big shift in reputation since it originally went out. Originally, it had the lowest audience appreciation index of any Doctor Who story, I think, ever. Certainly up to that point, I don't think it was ever (laughs) dropped below that point in the subsequent history of the show. And for a while, when Doctor Who fandom really becomes a thing in the 70s and 80s, and the only people who can talk with any authority about these shows are people who saw them at the time. They're not coming out on VHS yet. They're not being repeated on cable and satellite just yet. In that molten time, a few well-placed fans could lead the consensus, and the consensus was it was the worst story ever put out under the name Doctor Who. Then things change. Home video repeats contrarianism, and it settles down into people saying, well, actually, The Gunfighters is a comedy classic. Now, the reason we picked this one is the first proper Doctor Who story Gary sat down to watch as an adult was The Romans. And I picked it because I thought it was kind of like the kind of things he liked. It was nice and sort of camp and... There was lots of faces that you could spot in it because we both do that. We say, ah, oh, there's a face, there's a face, and Derek Francis was in it and so on. And yeah, I mean, it was, an, it was an enjoyable show. It was what it was. It was, I suppose, I presume, because it's not entirely Doctor-centric or particularly sci-fi, then I presume that this is one which is not hugely regarded amongst hardcore Who fans. 
But yeah, it was camp silly nonsense. There were some nice bits and pieces. There was some nice business going on with the doctor getting involved whilst not wanting to get involved, but then finding that he could get involved in one way or another, that it wouldn't then cause that. What is that time-space continuum? You know, the thing that was going on about Back to the Future that's going to blow everything up in the years to come. So yeah, there was a bit of that going on. And yeah, it was also... There was four people involved as well. So you had the Doctor and three companions. So in a way, you had sort of like two stories going on at once. And at the end, you said, oh, I really enjoyed that. Are there any more like this? And the one that popped into my mind that was closest to it would be the Gunfighters. It's historical, but it's also a knockabout comedy that gets somewhat less comedic as it goes on. You weren't as enamoured with this as you were the Romans, though, were you? No. I mean, at first... The Romans were slow to get going, so I'm giving the gunfighters the benefit of the doubt as I'm starting to watch it. And I'm thinking, okay, well, so far it just sort of looks like the Doctor and his two companions now, different companions, it looks like they've landed in some duff western. But I'm sure there must be more to it than that. It's not just going to be that they are effectively wandering around with back projection of white Earp and gang going on in the background. But actually, that, that's sort of how I felt by the end of it, is that it seemed that the Doctor was just dropped into someone else's story, a rather poorly executed Western drama. And as time went on, I sort of realised he's not really going to have much of a role to play in any of this. And as it turned out, in the big finale, in the big final scene, he wasn't even involved. He wasn't even there. I had another reason for picking this. During the Romans, the spectre at that particular feast was Patrick Troughton. Another reason that I liked the Romans was I wanted to run with the idea that had Patrick Troughton replaced William Hartnell a year early, the big differences between the two performances wouldn't be that marked. Because in the Romans, William Hartnell is pretty odd and crazy and chuckling a lot and messing around with people. And enjoying it. Now this, I think, suffers for a bit from being a William Hartnell story. Because William Hartnell's Doctor is very good at taking charge. He has a definite sense of what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. He has his own sense of right and wrong. I mean, William Hartnell has a very commanding presence when he's angry. Or when he's laying down the law. And in this, he doesn't get much of an opportunity to do that at all and had this been a Patrick Troughton story I think some of the line readings would have been different and rather than the doctor see you got it right then being sidelined you would have had more of a sense of him leading from behind more sense that he had a purpose in staying in the jail when he did his dialogue with Earp might have been more leading surely you mean Werp Aha, yes. I do like that. I do. <laughs> and it's interesting because he doesn't really get much to do in his normal Doctor Who mod. They're just little bits where he seems to be having a laugh. I mean, the, the expression he pulls when he's having his tooth extracted. He really, some amazing gurning there. And I don't doubt a lot of this is in the script, but this is a feeling I get from more than one cast member. And I had a quick watch of the first and last episodes with the commentary track on just before we started recording. I don't want to get more background on this. And Peter Purvis complained about the director not giving him enough direction. He said he got the feeling that he'd cast all the other parts. And the regulars, who he hadn't cast, the director being Rex Tucker, he seemed to leave to their own devices. Either because he thought, well, they're the regulars, they'll know what to do. Or because just like, well, you're not my people. So Peter Purvis has said he didn't have a fantastic time on this. He felt a bit lost. And apparently other actors in other productions had occasionally had this complaint about Rex Tucker. And people who spoke in support said, no, that was his thing. Once he'd cast you, casting you was the direction. He was so careful in his casting that it was kind of, I know who does what and what they're good at. And that was really meant to be. It's like, if you are you, do your thing. But there is a sense that occasionally there's actors having fun and then it's like oh yeah we've got to tell this story about the gunfight of the okay corral haven't we okay back to the exposition okay so this is my first criticism 
because I'm not looking upon this as if it's going to be the finest piece of drama that BBC have produced in 1966 or anything like that. Little things like, for example, some of the accents of the... Oh, you noticed! (laughs) (laughs) Some of the accents of the residents were sort of wandering from time to time. But that's okay. I mean, I'm not fussed about that. What did bug me was a particular continuity error. Because there's only so far you can sort of take liberties before you say, well, hang on a minute. If this has been allowed to stay in, then I'm having a hard time actually sort of keeping my disbelief suspended. There's this one instance where Peter Purvis, I'm going to call him that for out, and companion C Dodo. slash free. Okay, Dodo. Okay. They're putting on their phony accents. At one point, they then start having what they think is a private conversation as they go up the stairs, but they're overheard. Now, when they're having their supposedly private conversation, Purvis has dropped his accent deliberately. And then he's overheard by one of your gunslingers. Then Peter Purvis puts his accent back on again. Now, I didn't get that because if he's been rumbled already, that wasn't the sort of the crux of the matter. But nonetheless, if they've heard him and they've picked up one of the words that he said, because you know, basically they've heard doctor. And so they think, oh, doc. And so, you know, there's a case of mistaken identity. You think, well, if they've sort of rumbled him, then why bother keeping up the accent? And that actually happens a few times. There's quite a few times when Peter Purvis drops his accent and then brings it back on again in front of the same people. And you sort of think, hang on a minute, surely somebody's going to point this out as some stage in proceedings. Well, if you want the hand away for why the other characters don't point it out, the doctors introduce them as being travelling players. So they probably don't find it that odd that actors or entertainers would have affected accents. And I think at that time, even an American actor might have something approaching a mid-Atlantic accent. So you can hand wave that saying, well, the reason nobody else points it out is, you know, they're actors. One of those accents is their real accent and one of them's put on. And I'm not going to ask which because they're not really that important to me. But why are Stephen and Dodo doing it? There's an interesting idea that's not pursued, which is up to a point, it's still a game to them. I mean, when they find out they're in the Old West, they go back into the TARDIS and they come out dressed ridiculously. I watched this with my wife and she said Dodo looked like she was dressed for the Mickey Mouse Club. (laughs) Stephen is compared to Tom Mix. He's got tassels all down his shirt. And he just starts like saying, I'm the fastest girl in the West and all this. And it's like, no, this is real. And it would be interesting for them to at some point drop the accents because they suddenly realise that they're tourists, actually. Some point you must have come across more than once even an obnoxious tourist who thinks they can do a scottish accent he must have heard tales told of people who just come into town and treat the people who are living their lives in this place like they're a bunch of non-playing characters funnily enough i can't actually say that i have but i've had sort of the reverse well pretend for the sake of the point i'm making i can tell you that i used to work with somebody I didn't know him particularly well but I used to work with somebody in an office down in Hampshire and this guy had lived in Australia for one year and then come back and when he came back he was full on oh good day mate cobbers how you, how you diddling and so on and it, honestly he was just speaking as if he was in home and away and it was it was quite irritating because you knew that he was full of it and people who had known him before he went to Australia say, I don't know why he's persisting in this phony accent, but he decided to just sort of keep it up. And yeah, that could get tiresome. So yeah, I know, I sort of know what you mean. Yeah. This is the anti-penultimate historical. There's only two more historicals after this in Doctor Who drops the idea. But before this, there are a lot of historicals under the show's belt. I think it's like every third story. And as you said about the Romans, there's a reasonable amount of care taken. There's this whole thing of maybe, you know, can you change history? Should you change history? And this is suddenly the idea of the difference between history as it was and history being as it's thought of. Stephen and Dodo don't think they've landed in the West. They think they've landed in a Western. And to a certain extent, they have. The details of the gunfight of the OK Corral are just ripped up and thrown into the wind for the purposes of this story. Not just the fact that the end of this gunfight is staged to take about five times as long as the actual 
gunfight. That's understandable. But I mean, Wyatt Earp, he was apparently very softly spoken, but he wasn't this religious figure constantly talking about the abode of the unrighteous and all this. That's nonsense. He wasn't working with Bat Masterson at that time. They add Clanton brothers. They take away another set of brothers. They don't really talk about the proper... The motivation is changed something to do with White Earp killing a Clanton brother who never really existed. It's all written to the idea of what the gunfight at the OK Corral was like, based on previous movies. Now, there is this other production kink in here. It's commissioned by one production team, John Wiles and Donald Tosh, it's being seen through by another production team who didn't really want to do it. So there's also an extra layer of, oh, let's just make fun of it. The comedy is deliberate. Donald Cotton had previously written a story called The Mythmakers, which did a similar thing to Greek mythology as this does to Western mythology. But there seems to be even more mockery piled. So there's mockery of Western cliches. There's mockeries of our ideas about Western cliches. There's mockery of this damn Doctor Who scripts that I didn't commission. And I don't really want to do, but we're going to have to do it anyway, because otherwise we'd have to find four episodes of something else. And in between this, I think you have actors at different degrees of engagement with the text. And so it's all over the place, but I quite like it being all over the place. Just want to raise a further point of order here because you said that Lulu, or whatever her name was, she <laughs> thought that they had arrived in a Western. Now, if I'd known that this was actually on the cards, if this was actually a possibility, I would have suggested could the Doctor and his companions not arrive in the middle of, say, the army game or marriage lines? Well, that would be difficult, wouldn't it? The, be yeah, well, no, but it had to be the right. It had to be the right series of the army game. Otherwise, yeah, you're gonna have split screen problems. But say they arrive slap bang in the middle of Hugh and I. I mean, why not? Well, no, it's not so much a matter of that they think they've arrived in a fictional narrative, but they don't really see any difference between an actual place where people lived and died, a horrible, dusty, corrupt mining town where it is not unusual for people to be shot over minor points, and a place where people who are representing the law are not necessarily that much more law and order than the gang members they're going after. And I've taken so long, I can't remember what my... Right, Dodo doesn't really think about that as just like, cowboys and Indians, yay! You're fighting firing guns. Yes, I get your point. I mean, as far as the Doctor himself is concerned, yeah, he is once more concerned with not meddling. And not really wanting to get involved. And yeah, it, it does sort of rankle a little bit that this idea that they feel obliged to stay somehow because there were plenty of opportunities when they could just have cleared off. But of course, we've got this little device. The doctor needs to have his tooth out. Yeah, that's part of the problem with this compared to the Romans. In the Romans, the exact same motivation, don't get involved, don't change things. Oh no were involved anyway. But in this, he's a bit too successful in not getting involved. Okay, don't get involved, and White Earp is interested in using him as a way to keep peace. The Clantons think that he's Doc Holliday and he's in the jail. So, yeah, he spends a huge chunk of the story sitting in the jailhouse, not really doing much, not being involved, actively trying not to get broken out of jail. Stephen gets a gun to him and he gives it straight to Wyatt Earp. I do like the bit where he's just like twirling it. And he's, I say, Mr. Werp, can you do that? He's a weirdly passive figure. I thought it also made a counterpoint with the Romans because I'm not sure at what point William Hartnell's health really starts to decline. But he's not as boisterous in this as he was in the Romans. That may go back to your point about how much direction he was being given, and perhaps how much leeway he had to do that. I think that perhaps the Romans, just in terms of the amount of available space, in terms of the location and so on, there was a bit more room to just wave your arms about. Whereas well, actually, this the gunfighters, I think, is very well staged for what it is. If you think how many shots there are from a high angle, and apparently it did, normal 
Doctor Who would have had five cameras. This has six, one of which is on this high gantry looking down. The number of times we have a shot from the top of the stairs looking down or just looking down the street. No, I think Rex Tucker is really great at staging his scenes and getting people in place. And it feels about as expensive as he could manage on that budget. It still feels somewhat constrained, though. There's not a great deal actually happens in any of those episodes until the last one. It's very slow-paced. I'm glad you said that. Oh? Because just when we're preparing, I'm thinking, I actually... You know, I don't like to be too recappy in these. I don't like to say, and then this happens and then that happens. I'm thinking, I can't really do that with this because I'm having difficulty remembering what happened when. The narrative seems to flop about. And yes, you're right. It's probably the lack of incident that makes it seem like too much is happening. It's actually too little happening. So let's compare companions. So in the Romans, you had Ian, the science teacher who sort of fancied himself, you know, not in a nasty way, but he liked being the big brother figure. You had Barbara the history teacher who enjoyed seeing the past and, again, sort of maternal figure. Vicky, the substitute granddaughter, who Doctor Who treats more like his granddaughter than his actual granddaughter. (laughs) I'm not quite sure what happens there. But there seems to be a much warmer on-screen relationship. Actually, I think I did talk about that, being that Maureen O'Brien knew what she was getting into. Whereas Caroline Ford had been promised more action than her character got. So I think she's a bit confined. And here we have Stephen and Dodo. Now, I'll tell you what, ask me some questions about the backgrounds of Stephen and Dodo. And I will quote you things I know from the actual text of the show. Not fan fiction, not licensed fiction, not spin offs, what I actually know about the characters. Okay, well. I get the impression that Stephen and Dodo, they seem a little bit more free and easy than their predecessors. And they're obviously going to express their opinions and what have you, but they seem a little bit more aligned with the Doctor, whereas we had a couple of companions, you know, the, your two teachers, they just sort of went off on their own. Yeah, I mean, okay, what is the background then of Stephen and Dodo? Um... Stephen is from the future and he was an astronaut and he got trapped on a planet and he got rescued by the TARDIS and he's a Protestant <laughs> and he was born sometime between 2200 and the year 4000 and he isn't immune to the common cold. That's about it. <laughs> and he can grow a beard. Pretty stereotypical character then. Dodo used to live with her aunt. Is there any more? Again, we've got a nice little focus on and the little problems in culture, television culture, British culture. Dodo was meant to be the working class character. The story sometimes read is that she was meant to be Cockney. I've listened to the audio of her first scene and going from what I remember the first of her stories that exists, she's actually meant to be Northern. Definitely flattened vowels. I definitely say from the northwest. And I'm not sure she'd been given much more character than you are northern and working class. Let's have a working class Doctor Who companion. And within a couple of episodes of her appearing, somewhere from above, the edict came down the companion must speak received pronunciation English. So she very quickly switches to RP. And with that, I think most of her personality goes with it. And nobody bothers to give her a new one. She's possibly the most generic of any Doctor Who companion. It's a shame, because I'm not going to blame Jackie Lane, the actress. She's brought in to do a job, told not to do it, and then not really given anything new to do. And this story gives her a few moments where I can see what they could have done with her. Well, the only scene of hers in her entire run on the show that really sticks in my mind, maybe there's some great stuff in the missing episodes, is when she takes Doc Holliday hostage. And her line is, I shall try not to kill you. I said, yeah, make her 
a finishing school girl. Make her upper middle class. Just a little bit on the edge of prim and proper, but strangely adventurous. She's trying to get away from certain aspects of us. And I mean, nobody really thought about Doctor Who in, in so much detail, but trying to get away from certain aspects of herself and then finding that whatever she did, she carried them with her. So she's on an adventure and then finds a certain frightfully, frightfully Britishness in herself that actually helps. That would have been one way of doing it. There is a bit at the beginning when the Doctor asks if she's all right playing the piano. She says, I'll have a bash. And that's about all that's left of her original working class roots. Now, Jackie Lane got a raw deal. So how long do Stephen and Dodo exist in the Doctor Who universe? Uh, Stephen has one more story to go. Dodo has two more stories to go. Actually, Stephen has more than twice as long with the Doctor as Dodo does. And Peter Purvis and Jackie Lane were fired. Fired? Fired. Your contract's not getting renewed. So were they written out in some sort of proper manner or did they just Stephen was. Oh, Stephen was. Stephen got a big goodbye. I am needed here and I shall stay here. He got all that business. Dodo leaves two episodes into her last story and just sends a message saying I'm not coming back. Okay, get ready to make an appalled noise of sympathy. Apparently the reason given for firing Jackie Lane was that she looked too old. What? I know. That's the patriarchy, man. I mean, fine, maybe the character's being written as a teenager, and yes, she doesn't look like a teenager, but the solution to that is, right, have we ever at any point absolutely stated her age? If the answer is no, write her more towards the age she is. If the answer is yes, how long ago did we do it? Right, I think everybody's forgotten. And given that they really changed her from supposedly working class to middle class, and that wasn't a problem, then surely they could just tweak that aspect of her character as well. It's a cruel business. Uh, but you remember Vicky from the Romans? Yes. Fired. <gasps> and I watched the documentary on the DVD, which talks about John Wiles, Donald Tosh, the people who commissioned this script, but didn't see it through. And they talk about... Maureen O'Brien turning up, coming back from holiday, finding the next four scripts are not waiting on her mat, and then coming into, I don't know if she's coming into actual rehearsals for her last, but coming in in a bit of a rage, because, oh, we thought you knew. I think the script editor was under the impression that she'd asked to leave. She hadn't. And the stories I've heard is she questioned some dialogue or questioned a decision made by the production team and that was it right you're out your contract's not going to be renewed she has said she would have thought twice about renewing anyway but just the whole thing of being fired not being told about it so she went she said it went on holiday i could have been looking for work you know it's satan grieves you all over again he said watch this documentary about john wiles and donald tosh and i have to say watching the documentary shifted my perception of them into the negative. They came in, apparently John Wiles came in saying he wanted to break the show out of the childish rut it had got into. I don't think it had gotten to a childish rut. May not have been as fresh as it was when it had started, but to say that Series 2 Doctor Who is childish seems a bit cold, even taking into account the chase, which is kind of a mess. Okay, I want to raise a controversial point of order at this You stage. do that, man. We are not necessarily ones to quote controversy for its own sake, and that's not what I'm doing here, but I'm asking the question legitimately as a passing viewer of Doctor Who. Is Doctor Who a children's show? It's a family show, in that I think you can allow yourself more leeway with it than something that you know is going to be on at four o'clock in the afternoon. But once you've lost child appeal, I think you're in a bad place. This comes, I mean, I'm a big fan of comics, and I do like the comics that have the sex and violence of real life. But I think with certain characters, if you're paying absolutely zero attention to a child audience, you're doing it wrong. I mean, some of the... Batman comics I read as a child felt terribly grown up and sophisticated when I was a child. And now I go back and read them. They seem incredibly vital and by the seat of the pants. And yeah, this doesn't make sense. So what? 
they were mature when I was young and they're young now that I'm old. But they have that cross appeal. Right, let's talk about Dodo again, actually. So because Dodo has no history and not much personality, when the licensed fiction comes in, people come in to write for her. And apparently when she's... <laughs> when she's travelling with, let's call him Doctor Who, she picks up a fatal venereal disease. And leaves what? the TARDIS with... Yeah, she leaves the TARDIS <laughs> with a fatal venereal disease and then she meets a guy who is investigating all these weird conspiracies that are actually Doctor Who stories and has a brief affair, gets pregnant, but gets murdered. Because, you know, it's real, isn't it? Adult gritty fiction. Now, I think you can take a slightly more mature approach to these things and just indicate some of this. Okay, I have my theory why actually I don't think Dodo would have ended up in a really bad place. It's a big spoiler, I'm afraid, for you. That's not a problem for me. Okay. So her replacement characters, Ben and Polly. Because finally, it's like, you know, actually, we can't have a working class character. Something's changed, and Ben Jackson is a Cockney sailor. I don't know if it's okay for a man to have a working class accent. And the girl who replaces her, Polly, played by Annika Wills, is something of a swinging Dolly Bird, well, if you've ever seen a picture of Annika Wills, the most 1966-looking person you could have. She would appear in an advertisement for the Mini, perhaps, oh, by Simon yes. D. So Ben and Polly leave with the Doctor, and at some point they find themselves with Patrick Troughton, they find themselves with the second Doctor, and then they end up with... A Scottish companion, played by a guy from Horsforth. They leave shortly after, and it just so happens they leave because they found they've arrived in London via the TARDIS on the day they left. They realise that where they've been dropped off is exactly where they need to be to resume their lives. Which means Polly's going to resume her job. Now, Dodo had gone and left to spend some time with some people who were peripherally involved in this project called Sea Day. And I haven't watched the story recently, but I think at one point Dodo is actually sort of turned over to Polly. Look, you know, can, can you just show around town? So Polly's resumed her life. Dodo is crashed out somewhere. Now, if Dodo starts having the psychological problems some people have theorized that would happen when you've suddenly stopped traveling in time and you're not sure if they really happened. Well, the people looking after going, well, she needs to get out. She needs to, uh, that Polly girl, let's give her a ring. Can you come round? And then Polly can come round and Dodo's going, look, I think all these crazy adverts... No, yeah, they really did happen because they happened to me. And that's it, because she's only like a phone call away from somebody who went through the same experience. So that's my theory about why Dodo probably wouldn't have gone crazy. She's actually got people to talk to about what it's like. But what I'm talking about is that whole thing of when you take something that's initially aimed at children, has appeal beyond children, Sometimes you can try and adulterate it. <laughs> you know the word I mean. Yes. But we'll go in a that. way that makes it look stupid, as we'll all see in March when Batman vs. Superman <laughs> comes out. <laughs> so one of the things that happened in comics in the mid-80s is this thing of kind of this deconstructionist mindset, taking an aspect of a simple narrative and exploring the complexity that would arise from that. And if you think about it, some of Doctor Who's companions are going to go crazy. If their adventures come to too sudden a halt, they're not going to be entirely sure they really happened. Are some of them going to come out with post-traumatic stress disorder? But I think if you're going to do that, you need to do it with a light touch, because otherwise the whole edifice is going to collapse. If you pile too many real-world wars onto a fantastic narrative, I think the fantasy can start to look ridiculous. But that's something I would say, because for all that I know a lot about genre shows and fantastic things, I, I'm really mainly drawn to stuff that is at least moderately realist. I, I've never been able to get into things like, say, The Hobbit or even Star Wars. 
things like that. Because if the whole construct is just nonsense, basically, I mean, I know that sounds really dismissive, but you know, you know what I mean. It's, it's all fantasy, basically. I find it very difficult to actually really get engaged with it. So I know what you mean. I, I'd like to have a little bit of, at least a little bit of real worldiness about whatever the construct that's the thing. is. Real worldiness, verisimilitude rather than realism. But I think sometimes you can put so much realism into something that you just poison it entirely. I mean, what is Elmer Fudd's end plan for Bugs Bunny? <laughs> <laughs> yes. We know what it yeah. is. But yeah. <laughs> if in a Bugs Bunny cartoon we were showing the skinned rabbits that Elmer had previously successfully killed with his gun, it's like, you've not actually unveiled the truth about Bugs Bunny. You've not told us anything we didn't know and weren't already suspending. There are examples, and I can't bring them to mind, but there are cases where people try to do that juxtaposition and both reality and fantasy just look stupid. It's a bit like Hank Hill said about Christian rock. You're not making Christianity better, you're making rock and roll worse. Okay, well, is this a fair analogy or not? But is it one that springs to mind because it's been on recently. The Dad's Army drama that was on BBC Two over Christmas. That illustrated the oft-told story about how Paul Fox, who was controller of BBC One at the time, how he had said to David Croft, I don't want any, you know, newsreel puffy footage in the opening titles for this. Because it's one thing setting it in wartime and it's a, a realistic setting that people can recognise and that people can remember from 30 years previously. But there's a difference between that and actually showing people legitimate footage. Now, there's no legitimate footage of you know anything going on Doctor Who, obviously, but you, you were telling me off air before about a story called The Massacre and how that's <laughs> somewhat too real and close to the bone to really be considered science fiction fantasy. I mean, it doesn't seem to fall to either The Massacre is a pure historical and... I'm going to say that's high on the list of the ones I'd like them to find. Because it does have this big reputation as being the most dramatic, serious, adult Doctor Who of the black and white era, certainly, and maybe from 63 to 89. And it'll be interesting to see how far they could take it. I'm not against those themes. It's a matter of lightness of touch. There are things about the Second World War that Dad's Army can deal with, or wartime in general. I mean, the one about Godfrey's First World War record. That's really bringing heavy themes, because once we think about objection, we think about why, we think about what he did, what he didn't do, we think about what he must have seen, but there are certain other aspects of the Second World War that I don't think the show could have dealt with. And that's not a flaw in the premise. That's fine. It's a limitation and it works brilliantly well within that limitation. There are just certain things you couldn't describe. You can have sirens going off. Was there ever an actual air raid? I mean, there's things about, you know, anti-aircraft batteries. And there are other things of planes flying overhead. I don't think you could show the immediate aftermath of an air raid in all of its full horror in Dad's Army. And not doing that is fine. We can still have some of the feelings somewhere in there. Some things just need a light touch. Some things need to be watercolored and other things need to be oil painted. And there's a risk. Hey, Doctor Who and the gunfighters. <laughs> Because, of course, this is all about people being killed. And one of the things I like is as it gets closer and closer to the gunfight, the humour starts to fall away. And can we just mention Anthony Jacobs as Doc Holliday? It's not really spoilers. <laughs> the bad guys get killed. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, don't take the that look many on his, with the story. The look on his face when he kills Johnny Ringo who wasn't actually at the gunfire of the OK Corral and probably killed himself. But the look on Doc Holliday's face, I know he blinks when the gun goes off, but there's no emotion in that face as he kills a man. I can live with the fact that that is the guy we saw earlier on taking a slug of whiskey, and it was really funny because he was about to perform a dental operation. 
you mentioned in the Romans about how there is an on-screen death which is black humour. There's nothing like that here. All the deaths are purely dramatic. There's, there's, there's none of that kind of thing. I mean, there's humour in the early episodes, as you said, but there's not really black humour in this. There's one little bit that actually I don't think sits right. When Doc is going off to get Dodo and Kit, get his his woman, probably a semi-fictionalised version of Doc Holliday's actual wife, he goes off to get Dodo and Kit something to eat, and we hear two gunshots, and then he comes back with a tray and he said, I bumped into an old friend and he lost his appetite. We've got to be at least moderately sympathetic to Holliday. It's, like, it's just murdered somebody for dinner? I think they could have lost that bit, actually. It's fine, we understand that he's not completely whiter than white super moral, but that bit kind of jarred. Do you lose sympathy for the Rumpel kid early on in Carry On Cowboy? Ah, uh, yes. That, you know, that was another thing I wanted to talk about. It's something I think we're going to have to do. British Westerns. Have you ever heard anybody say that Carry On Cowboy is the first British Western? Have heard anybody put that opinion forward? I'm pretty sure not I have. Not really. Not really, no. Carry On Cowboy, though, isn't even the first Western with Sid James in it. <laughs> there are three that I know of. One of the, I forgot the title of one of them. It has Arthur Askey. Sheriff of Fractured Jaw. Now, Sheriff of Fractured Jaw is like, now, this is what you could have done with the idea. Kenneth Moore becomes the sheriff of a western town in his full Kenneth Moore British chappishness. It's very frustrating. Imagine William Arnold in the middle of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Imagine if it turned out that all the historical records were wrong and nothing happened. He stopped it because he walked into the middle. Throw down your gun, sir. Something, but it's an intoxicating idea because the Western is so un-British. It is that part of American culture which seems to have no links left. Okay, yeah, I'm contradicting myself earlier on because I said that there was a certain amount of flowery language expected from certain levels of society that you could find. But no, the Western culture as a whole is very un-British, but it's an English-speaking people. There's a fascination for that, and of course there's a fascination for putting the two next to each other. In Sheriff of Fractured Jaw, it's that kind of thing comes through. That no-nonsense, tweedy attitude. In Bootle Saddles, it's all about the failure of British people to live up to that dream, or just how amusing it is that they find ways of building the dream out of other things. And it's not really explored because Doctor Who is a Victorian British gentleman, and they don't really do enough. They sideline him too quickly. When you were watching this, you didn't really like the fact this was a pure historical, did you? No, because I was sort of thinking this really just seems as if the Doctor has been put into another drama and quite often he is just a bystander. I wanted him to get involved somehow and occasionally he would do and so on but not in a pivotal way as he was in the Romans. Eventually he really is just a bystander in that final scene and let's face it, the final scene is pretty much all that happens in the space of four times 25 minutes. And so the whole thing could have happened exactly as it did without the Doctor and his companions being there, ultimately. Yeah, I think that's the problem. I thought you were sort of not liking the fact that there weren't any space and science fiction elements. I like the historicals. But the thing about the historicals, if you're going to put the Doctor in a recognisable setup, well, either you put him in an unrecognisable setup, you put him in a point of history, maybe the massacre does this, maybe it doesn't, but you put him in a point of history where we don't really know what's, it's not familiar. We're finding out with him, or we're finding out with the companions what actually happened at this point in history. Or you put him in something very recognisable, and suddenly it's like, no, I'm here, now the story's going to play by my rules. A Western with me in it is different from a Western <laughs> left to its own devices. I think I would probably have preferred it if the Doctor had been somewhat more mischievous. 
and actually was willing to get involved. Now, I can understand that he's got concerns about getting involved with Nero and so on, but surely, you know, why Erp, Doc Holiday? Is it not really just a little local difficulty? In the grand scheme it's of things... It's the most famous gunfight of all time. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, if he meddles and... And I suppose one of the lost opportunities is they play it the way people think of it rather than the way it was. You were essentially talking about a gang of outlaws and a gang of lawmen. But there is a certain feeling that the Earps were a gang. It's not talking about a good guy with a white hat. Not saying that there was pure villainy and corruption. But Earp seemed to have ended up bent on revenge. In some ways, it wasn't really the laying down of the law that tamed the Wild West. Earp is actually part of the Wild West, part of the idea of when a lawman was a poacher turned gamekeeper. I still would have preferred it if the Doctor had meddled. Definitely, yes. So if they turn up in the OK Corral and find out what it was really like, I mean, Dodo has the thing about she's always wanted to meet Wyatt Earp. It would have been great to find out when she finds out that he's a hard-drinking, gambling man himself. You remember me saying in the Romans about does the Doctor not have any superpowers? Does he have any magic skills or anything like that? You know, he's got this bloody great TARDIS. So you'd think that, you know, he might be able to just do the odd funny little thing. And I know he's got his sonic screwdriver later on, all that kind of stuff. So has he actually got like any skills where he could suddenly become the fastest gunslinger in the West? That would be cheating. It would be more interesting to find out that he had a skill with a gun that we never knew he had. He doesn't like guns, though. Time to mention... No. I want to mention another Western that I actually watched genuinely in preparation for this because it popped into my head. And I thought, no, no, right, I'm going to get that from popular DVD rental service. Destry Rides Again. James Stewart. I was reading a bit about it. It said, this is based on a book and it has absolutely nothing to do with the book. Uh, the book is about a guy who's determined for revenge and goes out and gets the guys and good old-fashioned Western grit. The movie appears to be a mockery of the ideas in the book because there's this whole thing about the lawless town and the town drunk is made sheriff, but he decides he's going to play it straight and he's going to get the son of James Destry. Oh, well, you wait, you wait till he gets here. You'll see a real man. You'll see the kind of grit that we have in the Old West. And James Stewart turns up looking all lanky and softly spoken, never answers a question straight. Everything seems to remind him of some little folksy story that has some metaphorical relevance to what he's really talking about. And there's a scene where the saloon owner says, oh, we have a tradition here. I collect the guns of deputy sheriffs, so why don't you just hand over your guns? And Destry said, well, I'm afraid that's not going to be possible. <laughs> oh, boy. It's going to kick off. And it's like, I don't think you heard me. You have to hand over your guns. And it's like, I'm not wearing any guns. It's that whole thing of he doesn't like guns. And he fits in with another idea that's interesting to put in a Western narrative. The Western narrative being so goodies and baddies when done a certain way. And an idea very relevant to Doctor Who. The unhero, Not the anti-hero. The unhero. This guy is not meant to be in this role. This guy is not meant to be the centre of the narrative. He's a supporting character, but somehow he's ended up in the middle of it. And another perfect example, Columbo. Columbo! Columbo does not act like a force of justice. How much is he pretending? How much is he not? But he's not the image that pops into your head when you think hero. In the early days, when it was the Weller man, was his name, Bert Fjord, doing it, was he not a bit more forceful in saying, God damn it, I want answers? Yeah, Bert Freed. You know that Simpsons, where they get trapped on the island and they sort of replay Lord of the Flies and they have a trial for Millhouse? Right. Think about nicking their food or something. And Nelson's prosecution is just start smacking him and going, You did it! Why did you do it, you jerk? No, you did it! Uh, there's a faint feeling that Bert Freed is Columbo. If. <laughs> If he doesn't get to a certain point by a certain time, he's just going to start smacking the guy. You did it, and I know you did it, and you better confess or I'll smash you to bits. 
I like that as an approach. <laughs> I don't think it's used well, enough. That's, that's anti-hero rather than on-hero. It's basically why I kind of don't really go for any of the doctors after Patrick Troughton. Joan Pertwee brought in a heroic element. He's tall and commanding and quite distinguished. And e- even Tom Baker with his wackiness, there's still something a bit too leading about him. What about Peter Davison? Peter Davison's very heroic looking. Really? Yeah. Maybe not a tough guy hero, but no, Peter Davison is a leading man and a heroic looking leading man at that. I was just thinking in terms of comparing him to John Pertwee, he's not really, he doesn't have an aura about... Well, I don't know. There's stuff about the show in the 80s that just doesn't click with me. Anyway, Patrick Troughton. So, Patrick Troughton. They get Patrick Troughton. They need a new doctor. They get Patrick Troughton. At some point, and I don't know if he was aware of it or not, but apparently at some point, William Hartnell, now knowing that he's going to be leaving and the show's going to continue without him, strides into the production office and said, well, there's only one person who can replace me, and that's Patrick Troughton. So he's even got the seal of approval from his predecessor. And when they're originally doing the documents for what the character's going to be like, there's some mention about him having a sardonic sense of humour like Sherlock Holmes. Patrick Chanton's not really comfortable with that idea. And there's some back and forth about what is his personality going to be like. And he felt he couldn't even be like William Hartley. He couldn't have that commanding, gruff, the still existing sliver of the Sergeant Major in Hartnell's personality. And supposedly at some point somebody says, Destry writes again. He's manipulative. He leads from behind sometimes. He's willing to look a fool because while he's looking a fool, he can pay attention to everything else that's happening and work out who's who and what's what. So that's relevant. And that's why I think the gunfighters might have been better as a Patrick Troughton story. Patrick Troughton only ever got to do one historical. But there would have been that sense that he's fully aware of what's happening and he is trying to push events in a certain direction. He might not be able to bend history to his will, but he might, in his own small, subtle way, be ensuring certain things happen and certain things don't happen. Whereas there's not a great deal that you can really attribute to the Doctor in this, is there? No, just the fact that every now and then William Hartnell looks like he's having a good time, just getting a bit of comic business. That bit where he goes to lean on the bar and, of course, there's a dead body on it. And he's... Oh, and the <laughs> Johnny Ringo's line to Stephen, it's something like, I'll shoot you as soon as spit on you. And, I mean, that's a good, you know, way to end a, a scene in a Western. <laughs> but you got to Willie Mother go, disgusting habit. Like, yeah, <laughs> just those little bits that play against the Western cliche. Of course, we haven't really discussed in any depth. We, we, we touched on it earlier on. You mentioned it as one of the aspects that lured me into this in the first place. But we've got narration. Of course. Singing narration yes. from Linda Barron. And I, I said to you whilst we're watching this, I said, I'd like to see this introduced into all the Doctor Who's. As a matter of fact, I would like to see this introduced into all holodrama. I have to say, by the end, I'd kind of had my fill of the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon. And it's not so much the problem that there's the constant singing presence. In the script has written, I think we might even just have the scene with Stephen singing it. And at some point when this production team, Ennis Lloyd and Jerry Davis, decide, well, let's just turn it into a farce. It's decided, let's make that the running narration. Once you've decided that the song has to bear that much weight, you're going to have to add some variations on the themes. You have to give it a bridge at points, just a few little inversions, just places where the tune goes somewhere else, because otherwise you've just kind of got one verse again and again and again. But yes, of course, Linda Barron at this time was as much a singer, if not more so, than an actress, and 1966, of course, she would have been best known for BBC Three, the TW3 alike that was on BBC One, presented by Robert Robinson, with its memorable Kenneth Tynan interjection. And I've seen a bit of one BBC Three, and I have to say, it's quite alarming seeing Linda Barron being thin. I did actually like that as a device. It was unusual, and yeah, I think it had run its course by the end of 40 episodes, but it was something a little bit different. And given that I wasn't massively enamoured with the gunfighters to begin with, if it wasn't for that, then it would have been even more of a, I suppose, a chore. 
I don't like to use that word, but if it wasn't for the fact that we were reviewing it, if I was just a passive viewer, then I don't know that I would have stuck with it. Put it that way. <laughs> a lot as, of people did. There's, 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 <laughs> there's my review. There's my review in, in, in a sentence. It would not have held my attention over the course of four weeks. I'm going to say it's a cure its egg. Just occasionally it shows us how wonderful it could have been. It definitely shows us that. There are glorious moments, but you can kind of tell that not everybody's on the same page and there is a faint sense of, let's get this done. But I think the closing gunfight is brilliantly done. And apparently, even then, some bits were cut out. Something was done in the editing that made uh, the director Rex Tucker take his name off the screen. One more lost opportunity in characterization to mention. I don't think they ever deal with the fact that Stephen and Dodo were born hundreds of years apart. She's from 1965 and he is at least from the 23rd century. So he could have been in a position to actually point out the flaws in the gunfight they were watching because he could have said, ah, what we're actually seeing here is a depiction of the story as it's oft told Wait, no. in actual fact oh, he I could think been, find it was like this he could have been way more clueless about the old west the old west would have seemed to him as far away as the ancient egyptians are from us the general public has some knowledge but knows very few specifics there could have been points at which he's operating on assumptions which are much much more naive than even dodo's because he's from much much further away but by this point stephen is just a nice young man from middle-class Britain from essentially the mid-1960s. And Peter Purvis was not pleased about being fired. But I think, yeah, they had to bring the swing 60s into it. Something would have had to have been done. Ben and Polly is one way of doing things, but uh, just firing people. Tent right. So winding up, we might do another Doctor Who story. I don't want to tread on too many people's toes because I think... There may well be interest in a proper Doctor Who podcast done by proper Doctor Who people who know things somewhere on the Podnos network. We don't want to tread on too many toes, but we might come back. Maybe next time we should talk about Patrick Troughton. We are going to watch another one almost immediately because I think some things might get said in response. I'm not sure that might spoil a story. So before you people have a chance to spoil that story with Peter Butterworth in for Gary... I'm going to make him watch it so he can come to it fresh because there are certain points about that. That's historical as well. When you say we're talking about Patrick Troughton, can we review the two of us? Watch the 10-11s ones and then just kind of like speculate. <laughs> so, well, try and work out what Patrick Troughton brought to Doctor Who through watching 10-11s in the two of us. It's a very unconventional method. Another thing that I don't know if I ever told you this, because you were talking about Cybermen with Ian during our Peep Show debacle podcast. When I was editing it the first time, I heard that you were reacting delightedly to some piece of information. I thought, oh, damn, Ian's told him and I wanted to tell him, but it wasn't there. <laughs> you know what a Cyberman is, though? There's actually organic matter in there. They're not robots. All right. right so, well, so if you crack open a Cyberman, there'll still be some blood and, and brains and stuff in there. That You know, they're cyborgs. Well, in the Tom Baker Cybermen story, Revenge of the Cybermen, if you opened up the Cyber Leader, do you know what would be inside? Christopher Southern Television Robbie! <laughs> he was a Cyberman. And he just raises a champagne glass and then reads from the TV Times. We are Police Box TV and we can't believe our luck. Well, I'm there. Yeah, get me this. Get me this right now. <laughs> Does he sing Finders Keepers? Anyway, so I think we'll probably come back to Who at some point, but yeah, we're, we're not we're not a Who cast. We're not if you, yeah, we're not we're not a Who cast. Who cast. We're, we're talking about. I like to think that we talk about Lost Britain, and I hope that we've said some new things about Doctor Who in this. If you'd like to suggest the story, well, look, if you want me to be on it, it's pretty much going to have to be black and white. And next time. Well, you say that we sort of look at lost Britain. I'm not entirely convinced that the Britain that's depicted in what we're looking at next time ever really existed. 
That's our aim, and of course, I think we're going to keep falling short of it. (laughs) Well, next time, one of the films is going to be French. So, have you been out to see James Bond and Spectre? I'm trying to get that Doctor Who thing going now for James Bond. Oh, see, right, okay. Well, but I know it doesn't work for all of them, but I think the ones where it it does, James Bond and Goldfinger. Okay, James Bond and Honor, any other. James Bond on Her Majesty's Secret Service. This would do like a whole Mr. Moto thing to James Bond. So have you seen James Bond and Spectre? Uh, I'm aware of the work. No, I haven't either. But James Bond, he's famous and British. He's the most famous spy there is. But what happens when you try to do the same kind of thing without the same resources? Normally we like to do things in threes. This time we're doing three plus one because it allows us to call next time's podcast Four Non-Bonds. If you've ever spotted, and I actually made this accusation on the Second Club just last month, if you've ever spotted a television program and thought they've clearly just come up with the name and then built the program around it, that's what's coming up next month. Also very much. Yes, indeed. We will see you first Friday in February, all being well. Don't forget you can find all the previous editions of Jaffa Kicks for Proust on our podcast feed. You can find them at sitcomclub.com as well, and you can find them all on Podnose. If you're not already following us on Twitter on our new Twitter handle, which is Jaffa's for Proust, please do. Just go to the Sitcom Club Twitter handle. You'll find a link to it on there. And in the meantime, Tilt, you've been Tilt. This is true. William Hartnell has been the Doctor. And I've been Gary, and you have been listening to the first 2016 edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust.